1: My guest today joins me in this two-part series. Dr. Silla Elworthy founded Peace Direct in 2002 to fund, promote, and learn from peace builders in conflict areas. She was subsequently awarded Best New Charity at the Charity Awards in 2005. She also founded the Oxford Research Group in 1982 to develop effective dialogue between nuclear weapons policy makers worldwide and their critics. It's for this work that she was awarded the Nuwano Peace Prize in 2003 and nominated three times for the Nobel Peace Prize. She helped found the Market Theatre in South Africa in 1976, long before it was legal for multiracial performances to take place, and has since worked with playwrights and directors, including David Edgar and Max Stafford Clark, to engage the public in political theatre. From 2005 she was advisor to Sir Richard Branson, Peter Gabriel and Archbishop Desmond Tutu in setting up the Elders Initiative. Later in 2007 she was appointed a member of the World Future Council and the International Task Force on Preventative Diplomacy. She's designed the Leadership Course in Conflict Transformation for the said Business School at the University of Oxford and is also co-founder of The Pilgrimage, a 24-hour intensive course that enables participants to make major shifts in consciousness and perception. She's Director of Programs for the World Peace Partnership, a five-year program underlying the World Peace Festival series, the first of which will take place on the 26th of August 2011. Dr. Silla Elworthy. Welcome to In Discussion today and my special guest Dr. Scylla Elworthy. Welcome to you.
2: It's very nice to be here.
1: It is a great pleasure and a privilege to have you joining me today. We are going to talk about your life and career and ever since my first program I had made the decision or intention to take guests back to their childhood to provide our audience with a clear narrative and visibility. Could we start with your childhood? I know that you were born in Gala Shields in Scotland. What memories, if any, do you have of that time?
2: I was only born in Galashiels. I was moved from there to my father's home in uh, England when I was six weeks old. So I love Scotland and I spend as much time as I can there. But I don't have early childhood memories there. In fact, I have very few memories from early childhood. I think probably my earliest memory is aged about five, all to do with gardens.
1: There is the wonderful organisation, I forget now the name of it in Scotland they have been there for about 30 or 40 years, who began a small garden are there to this very day.
2: Findhorn.
1: Yes. What a wonderful environment that they have created there and especially in that part of the world.
2: It's extraordinary what vegetables they managed to grow on an utterly windswept, Scottish, painfully cold, sandy environment right next to the North Sea. And they grow these most extraordinary, huge cabbages, massive vegetables. My memories of childhood were all to do with tagging around behind my mother because she was an avid gardener and she was also a farmer's wife, so she didn't have much time for her children. She had five. And so we just had to make do, follow along, organize ourselves and not be a nuisance. That was the main, the main theme running through my childhood. My father was very much a Victorian. He was 55 years old when I was born. And he was born in 1888. Can you believe it? And he rode into the First World War on a horse. And he was a formidable man, very frightening. And he didn't really like children. And I really, dearly wished that I had known him as an adult. He died when I was 18. And I would love to have known him and been able to really talk to him. Because as a child, I was just frightened of him.
1: That was very much a conditioning, was it not? I remember being very close to my Aunt Mary, who was born in 1899. Very strict But, of course, when you look back now, you realize amazing values, integrity, ethics. But the conditioning was, of course, that you weren't allowed too close. You couldn't create a sustainable relationship. Would you concur with that?
2: Yes, I think everything was much less connected in those days and much more stiff. Um, However, I entirely agree with you about the values. Honesty, straight-talking, responsibility was absolutely drummed into us. And also, management of money. We were taught, as quite young children, to take enormous care of our pocket money. And later, I was taught, I think, aged 13, how to manage a bank account with a checkbook and to balance it and all that. Life was taken seriously, I have to say. I don't remember any playing with my parents. All the playing we did was with our peers and my brothers. A lot of that pretty rough because there being four brothers, they had um, the beginnings of a rugby team and we played cricket and we shot shotguns and ran about everywhere like wild children. And it was absolutely Mm -hmm. wonderful.
1: Do you consider that it was very much a rural upbringing? Did you understand the values? Were you close to the soil, close to nature?
2: I think I was brought up really by my mother to respect nature and to take notice of nature and to be literally, literally close to it. And probably went as a toddler or, or before that I was crawling around on the earth most of the time, I would imagine. And then, as soon as I was old enough to plant a plant, I was given a little spoon and told how to do it and My mother grew all the vegetables that we ate she preserved and stored and bottled all vegetables so that we could eat during even during the winter. there were no deep freezes in those days and everything was sustainable and of course it was all without pesticides and without artificial fertilizers, so all the ground was fertilized with dung, with uh, with compost, which she also made. So, I mean, it was, I suppose, extraordinarily healthy, but healthy in the sense of being uh, taught by nature, being listening to nature, and marveling. All the time, my mother was full of wonder at the extraordinary beauty that surrounded us.
1: What is your principal recollections of your mother and father in those former years, let's say up to 10 or 11 years old? Are there any pivotal points that you can remember?
2: The relationship from between my mother and my father was not close. I don't ever remember seeing them embrace, much less kiss each other. And... I think my mother, who had been a very feisty young woman, she'd driven an ambulance in the First World War, aged 16. She went all the way up the Nile all by herself, aged 22. But her life as a farmer's wife was so demanding and so harsh, really. And she was also, I'm afraid she became frightened of my father, and so... There was a tension between them. And she was the one who gave comfort and a sort of crisp and brisk upbringing in the sense of, she would often say, pull yourself together or, you know, hurry up or whatever. She, she wasn't um, a doting mother in any sense, but her love was powerful. I mean, you knew who you were with her. Whereas my father took so little notice of us that I really spent my life trying to please him and never really feeling that I did. I remember bringing my school report. I used to slave away at school to try and get good marks and rushing home with straight A's on my school report and rushing to give it to him and coming into his study. I held it out to him, sort of panting with excitement. And he said, oh, put it down there, I'll have a look sometime. And being devastated by that. But, you know, I do firmly believe that the universe supplies us with the challenges that we need in order to grow. And these were just the first challenges.
1: It is a conditioning, is it not, that we have to bear through our lives. And of course, as we get older, we see that we tend to travel through life with these memories which tend to guide us in certain ways. And then of course you reach a point where you wonder how they as a generation inherited that way of life, that fear themselves. Have you ever considered in a cellular fashion how that works from generation to generation where in having choice points either decide or desire to overcome that frailty of fear live with it move with it not be able to let go of it is that something that you consider when we talk about emerging in consciousness increasing our awareness around us and increasing our ability to look at our inner self find our inner self
2: oh absolutely i firmly believe that experiences are passed down from generation to generation. I've observed, for example, that people who have been abused as children, even though they might utterly disagree with it in their conscious mind, unless they've healed that experience, will go on to abuse their children. Um, And likewise, through generations, until somebody stops it by working on it, by really Really investigating whatever it is and bringing it to consciousness and healing it, and I think that's that's our job as human beings to to evolve and to to evolve in consciousness. And um, I'm, I'm absolutely in agreement with you on that.
1: We talk about in our bridge programs as i had mentioned to you before the program with bill tiller and edgar mitchell not just talking about consciousness but unconsciousness perhaps it's the unconsciousness that we should be looking at that drives our lives maybe moving forward in this clearly evolutionary step that we're taking now to almost flip-flop those two so that consciousness becomes the unconscious would that be something that you could resonate with?
2: I don't quite see it like that, as flip-flopping it, but um, what we're observing right now today, what's going on, for example, in Cairo and Tripoli and in Bahrain with the young people coming out on the streets, I think this is a significant phenomenon of a tectonic shift that's going on in our age where... People are waking up very fast from traditional strictures, from traditional upbringings, even from strictures placed on them by religious laws, and finding that they have far more in common with their peers around the world than they necessarily do identify with being of a particular nationality. And hence they wish to not be harassed and oppressed by a particular government and their determination that we're seeing uh, to change that and to try and do it non-violently. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible.
1: Before we return back to your childhood, I look at this position and see that it is accelerating at a great pace Whether that's a psychological acceleration with the talks or points of view on the Mayan calendar or the shamanic teachings or the the various prophecies that we are going through this shift and it is definitely resonating. And of course, I look at it and I had discussed this with the wonderful Bill Tiller as an epoch, or as of course, as Barbara Marks Hubbard talks about, a rebirth that possibly began after 1945. Do you see that in your world as a possibility that we are entering an epoch and at this stage, unlike other implosions of civilizations, we can actually write with the technology at hand, the narrative, we can actually direct it?
2: I wouldn't be so bold as to say we can direct it. I think that's that would be hubris. I think we can listen to what wants to happen and try to serve it, to try to be of service. But I don't for a second think we can impose it. What's at work here is an intelligence that's so much more enormous than mine or yours that I wouldn't dream of doing that. Uh, Maybe I misunderstood you.
1: Yeah, and I don't think that I was terribly clear with that, but essentially saying that the situation that we have across the world that clearly is building up a momentum is driven by technology and social media. So to a great extent, unlike any other generation before, perhaps that social media has a great part to play in this in places like the Middle East.
2: Oh, huge. Absolutely. Um, I see the social media as a a product almost. I I think it, in a way, came about. I think the reason why people love and develop and invest in social media is their wish for connection. So I think it it was a product almost of this emergence and people freeing themselves from the shackles of their traditional thinking and wanting to become more conscious. And I notice it just from looking in my inbox every day, which is usually has between five and ten brand new initiatives or ideas or connections that people are starting and making with one another. So, you know, I can bear out what Paul Hawkin writes about in Blessed Unrest just by what people are sending me in the way of requests to connect, invitations and It's sprouting up like mushrooms through concrete everywhere.
1: Finding in a way that the universal oneness perhaps could be a good way to describe it.
2: Oh, absolutely, yes.
1: It seems to me the direction that we're taking, journey that we're taking now today, is opposing those human frailties, opposing the need to run, to have that fear, which is a great thing, of course. I was ever so interested when I read about your desire to visit Budapest when you were young, stopped in your path by your mother, throwing a sense of reality at the situation. You clearly remember that event very well.
2: Yes, I well, I can't forget it really. It was... When I was 13 in 1956 and watching a grainy black and white television in my parents' living room and seeing, to my horror, these Soviet tanks rolling into Budapest and kids my age literally throwing themselves against the tanks, trying to fight the soldiers um, with their bare hands. And I rushed upstairs and started packing my suitcase And my mother came up and said, what on earth are you doing? And I said, I'm going to Budapest. I had no idea where Budapest was. And she said, oh, don't be so silly. And then I burst into tears. And she said, "What? what's the matter? And I said, well, there's something terribly wrong going on there, and I've got to go and help. And she said, calm down. Pull yourself together. That's what my mother always said. And when she saw her, really, I cared about this. She said, okay, I'll help you get trained so you can be useful because you're much too young to be useful at the moment. But I will help you get trained and so that when you're a bit older, you can be useful. And she did. She sent me off at the age of 16 to work in a holiday home for concentration camp survivors, which I was absolutely fascinated by. And then I went off my own steam, actually, to work in refugee camps for people who'd survived the Vietnam War. And then I worked in in Algiers in North Africa, and so on and so on. Uh,
1: That intent did actually become a reality. Looking back on that, your need to help that may not have worked out with Budapest, but it certainly did manifest itself later when you visited these camps in Africa. Yes, indeed. You attended the School for Girls in Berkhamsted. Do you remember any anticipations or reluctance or a change of view when you began that journey in your life?
2: Oh, yes. I remember sitting the examination for the scholarship and I remember being given a bottle of milk, which it seemed extraordinary to me because milk, as far as I knew, came from cows and I was given this bottle, <laughs> it sounds silly, but that's what I remember. And then sitting there and doing all these sums, and then some months later being told that I'd got a scholarship, and so off I went to this school. And it was, um, it was an absolute eye-opener. It was quite academically demanding, and I sort of seemed to warm to that, because I had this deep-rooted thing that's, that's plagued me all my life, or maybe driven me all my life, and that's the feeling of not being good enough. And I think that came from my experience with my father, because nothing seemed to be good enough for him. I'm sure that wasn't the case, but that's the way I perceived it. And so I constantly drove myself, and I still I still do it, to work harder. Um, and in fact, in a way, that was the family mantra. Um, never mind the question, the answer is, work harder. So that's what we were like, and that's what I did at Berkhamsted School for Girls. I don't think I had nearly so much fun at, at school as most people do, but I had a lot of fun later on. You were in
1: 1962 relocated to Ireland to Trinity College. I'm ever so interested as I talk to those who left their school years and they moved on to Harvard or Yale or other academia what the changes are that you see through your eyes as you go from one educational establishment into the next step into that more serious academic environment where young people act differently look different have a different approach different type of camaraderie are there any memories there that you can point out that defined that period of what you were seeing in life?
2: Yes, certainly there were, but it was almost the reverse in that I was moving from a terribly serious school to a university in Dublin that was just having a whale of a time. I mean, we did very little work. Um, We spent most of our time protesting actually, sitting on the O'Connell Bridge on hunger strike a lot about refugees and about human rights issues. This was back, I was at Trinity College when President Kennedy was shot. So that must have been 1962, 63, I suppose. And um, I absolutely loved Dublin. Uh, I became a a fashion model and, and modeled in dress fashion shows. And I campaigned madly. And failed my exams. The first time I'd ever failed an exam in my life was at university. I comprehensively failed all my exams, actually. <laughs> and had to go back to the whole lot again. And that was around that time that I had my first experience of the United States because um, I was passionate to go to America. And in fact, I went in my gap year between school and university. And I got myself a Greyhound bus ticket that could take me all across the United States and started off in New York and went to Atlanta and Kansas City and Denver and ended up in San Francisco, which I completely loved and got a job as a nanny uh, on the campus of Stanford, Palo Alto. And oh, I had such a wonderful time. So this was a, a time of great freedom for me, really, and a lot of adventure, just endless adventure.
1: How do you compare that movement of the sixties with the movement that we have now around the world? This is not a great discussion point, but I'm interested. I always look at the sixties and see that that was now an amazing launch pad of what is occurring today. Perhaps in a way, it was not the time, or perhaps it was premature in what people seek, especially today as we look at a much higher sense of consciousness in the world. Perhaps that's what the 60s was looking for, but it was just not the right timing. Would you see it that way?
2: Oh, absolutely. And the Beatles got it. They got it right. I mean, the Beatles were prophetic in the lines of their songs. Sometimes I go back and look at the lyrics now and see how incredible... Incredibly insightful they were. And I mention them because I think they summed it up in many ways. Not just the way things were moving, but the insights and the frustrations that that people experienced. So I do feel that the 60s were like a beacon, really. And there just wasn't quite enough momentum. And there was still a struggle between the generations. It was before... It had become really acceptable for youth to have a lot of um, buying power. There was still a lot of tension between generations. Um, and I think that's what pushed us back into the consumerism and the economics of the 80s and the 90s.
1: As a social historian, I pretty much chart well-read in all of the civilizations, I do tend to look very closely at the 50s, 60s and following decades. It seems that the consumerism, the do-consume world began after the war in the 50s. And that what I call almost predatory greed that we see now began in the 70s as you took your journey. Could you see that playing out? Could you see that emerging?
2: I don't think I saw it at the time because as soon as I graduated, I went traveling and I went on a cargo boat all the way around the west of Africa, stopping off at many of those West African countries and then making my way through the Congo, which was at war with the the Belgian Congo. There was a war between the Belgian and the French Congo, made my way to South Africa. Where there was such a huge lot of a huge racial tension that I think I missed a lot of the late 60s and the anti-war movement, and I missed really the 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 whole revolution in 1968. Um, so I was in another world by then, a world where poverty was so shocking and striking and, and the, the needs of just survival for the vast majority of people in Africa was so immediate that it was hard really to think about or to really observe the kind of changes that you're, you're talking about. That, I, I only really noticed that when I got back to Europe much later.
1: You up to this point had been in academia and you are traveling gaining huge life experiences and now you of course you get married and how did that change your view i'm always interested marriage does tend to suppress some ideas some achievements or goals that we have purely because of different responsibilities how did it change your world particularly as an activist, what a sort of effects did it have?
2: That's very perceptive of you. On the one hand, I realized pretty quickly that there wasn't room for two, what I would call two central stage people in our marriage. My, my husband was a, an entrepreneur, uh, an in, extremely brilliant businessman, and a very larger-than-life personality and and i was very happy to support him really it was only later in our marriage that i realized that it wasn't possible for me to do what i really needed to do as an activist which and this wasn't until 13 14 years later and there wasn't really room for me to do that alongside him he 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 couldn't quite tolerate that but in the meanwhile we had Incredible experiences in uh, helping to set up the market theater, the first multiracial theater in South Africa, which was completely illegal. It was illegal for black people and white people to be on the stage or in the audience together. but some actors came to us and said that um, these were this was a multiracial group of actors who had nowhere to perform, and they had spotted that the The fruit market in downtown Johannesburg was for sale. And that was designated by Group Areas Act as a place where all the races could mix. And they asked us if we would help them to buy it and convert it fast enough before the authorities caught up with us. And, oh, that was such a whirlwind. We we did it in six months. We raised all the money. Um, I remember sitting next to people at dinner parties and refusing to to leave, really, until they'd given me a check. (laughs) uh, Scrubbing the floor of the theatre on the night we were opening with the first production of the Marat Sad, And it was, oh, it was such fun. We had a wonderful time. And we did that together, my husband and I, very, very close. And meanwhile, of course, Polly was born. And Holly was born in nineteen seventy four and it was a very, very difficult birth for me because I had practiced uh, natural childbirth and I really wanted to be conscious when she was born, as it happened, she was very late and um, she was about four weeks late coming, so I was ten months pregnant really and he was desperate to go off on a business trip to London. And he kept putting it off and putting it off. And eventually he said, look, I've, I've got to go tomorrow. And so I swallowed a bottle of castor oil, and that sent me into contractions in a big way. And I found myself in this very posh clinic. And they had no idea about natural childbirth and left me alone. He wasn't willing to be present at the birth. Um, which I was desperately sad about and so I ended up struggling on my own uh, which was weird in this very smart place and asking them not to drug me because I wanted to be conscious and the pain got more and more and more so eventually I said look I, I need something for the pain but please don't knock me out and the next thing I knew I woke up with them stitching me up literally and um and Polly born, so I didn't witness it at all, and I was devastated, absolutely devastated. And six weeks after her birth, I got a very bad brain disease called encephalitis, which knocked me into a coma for a couple of weeks, and so I had to stop breastfeeding, which was also devastating. So all that time was very, very tough and difficult. And um, taught
1: me a lot. I'm interested though because in that situation you are perhaps we'll call it a maverick or an activist however you would like to define it. Did your husband in any way take on or compromise in any way towards meeting that role and that objective and that passion that you had?
2: Yes he did. Um, He did. It was, um, in fact, he suggested that I should take up some of the work that I ended up doing, like going to work for Kupagani, which was a nutrition education organization. And he very much supported me doing that, and quite quickly I became the chair of it. And he was a wonderful companion in helping me to um, learn how to be a chair of a big organization. And helping me develop the sale of nutritious hampers, which eventually enabled the organisation to become financially self-sufficient. That was, I was really proud of that, because since then, I've spent so much of my time trying to raise money for the various organisations that I've run. But in that one instance, I managed to set up a self-financing scheme where we were selling hampers of nutritious foodstuff at Christmas to employers to give to their employees and it grew so fast and was so successful that it funded the entire organisation for the rest of the year and that was fabulous. I really, I really was thrilled with that.
1: That must have been a wonderful achievement and part of the healing process that you had traveled through through the birth of polly and in the months afterwards
2: yes i think that's right and polly was the most wonderfully healthy child and just a little beacon of light really she was tremendously easy as a baby and she's been like that all her life she's just like a little shining star which is not so little now she just got married. She was, she was my healing, I think. Mm.
1: The Market Theatre in Johannesburg was an amazing time of your life, obviously, clearly. The thing that interested me beyond creating a sustainable community where all creeds and colours could come to is the importance in valuing creativity, valuing artists and their role, especially today in this changing world. Was that something that you realized then, or is that something that you resonate with now in your work?
2: Oh, I think it's been all the way through. I've always loved political theater and the market theater was the sort of first big engagement with that. But since then, I've worked with various wonderful playwrights and directors, um, David Edgar and Max Stafford-Clark, with whom I was a student at Trinity in Dublin. And we've had extraordinary experiences both developing plays together, verbatim theatre, and also running. I've been running seminars during the day uh, leading up to the theater performance at night to help people understand the depths of political theater and i've got a lot of friends who are in the theater and acting in, in very very visible theater today so i i think it's a powerful means of communicating what for some people is is too hard to take in any other way or giving people insights into the background of politics
1: certainly very important to look back at the great orators and writers like Shakespeare and Chaucer Benjamin Franklin knowing what is important in their narrative and know what not to look at in the past but the same applies to art but art is a powerful tool today in particular it's certainly a very healing tool 1977 1978 you become involved with minority rights groups in france and also segue into unesco and of course you finish with this amazing ruling by the who to ban the practice that you're involved in this female genital mutilation where did you find that calling to look at this issue?
2: Well I've become aware of the practice of female genital mutilation in Africa. It affects mainly not the area that I was living in but rather the north-eastern part of Africa particularly Egypt, Sudan, Somalia, uh, Ethiopia and a band across sub-Saharan Africa and I was so horrified by the practices and the fact that they're carried out by women but out of fear that if their daughters are not mutilated, that means basically having their genitals cut off, that they won't get a husband because it's a practice that is supposed to make women more chaste and it it actually is a way of controlling women's sexuality. And nobody had written about it uh, at all. It, it was never spoken about. It was considered shameful. Um, and and also Westerners felt they couldn't criticise it because it was a traditional practice. So I got together with five uh, African and Arab women and we wrote the report together. And it was brought out by the minority rights group. And... It was the result of this publication that led to various campaigns and eventually the World Health Organization banned the practice and that led to national legislation. Believe it or not, in Britain, the College of Tropical Medicine in Liverpool was actually uh, teaching how to do the practice, teaching doctors from those countries how to do the practice on the grounds that it was better to do it under surgical conditions. So we had to get that stopped and we passed a law in the British Parliament to outlaw the practice.
1: I'm terribly interested in your brief thoughts looking back over this initial period of your life and also the role of women in leading peace. That is clearly a large part of your vision, your work, and of course, many around the world. How do you encourage that now, especially today?
2: Well, I was introduced to this whole subject by commission from UNESCO to write about the role of women in peace research and in the improvement of relationships between nations, about which I knew absolutely nothing. So I had to go and find out, and um, it started a quest that has lasted to this day of fascination with the way women deal with conflict, with violence, and with negotiation. Uh, And I've written and studied and researched, really, all the time since then, in, in the past 40 years, to find out more precisely what it is that women bring to this and the, the power of women and how women overcome a powerlessness, the powerless situation that they find themselves in in many cultures. And it's, it's a passion really with me and also to apply this to myself and to overcome, as, as many women have to do, our own feelings of powerlessness or inadequacy or not being good enough and this is this is a, a lifelong mission i think
1: and finally your thoughts on the entire journey that we've traveled through clearly that definition that you've just given me is very much a result of your journey and your experiences and your relationship with your father how do you think that people can look more at these relationships these obstacles this period in our younger years and resolve through healing to overcome that conditioning however you like to define it
2: Mm, well i think it's it's a it's a very it's the job that we have at the moment is to rebalance what I would call the masculine and the feminine. At, at the moment, the world is tilting heavily towards the traits of the, if you like, the, the left brain, the uh, technical fix, the judgmental and the aggressive. And we have been neglecting the, if you like, the, the right brain, the intuitive the feelings of the collective the compassionate, the harmonious, the caring, the gentler side of ourselves. And it's crucial that we, in all of us, whether we're men or women, learn to rebalance ourselves, learn to root ourselves back in respect for the earth, respect for nature, the conservation of resources, paying attention not to not polluting our environment, not dirtying our mess, and ruining the prospects for the future. So I do believe that the long history of women as guardians of the sacred, guardians of, um, or, or carers for children and looking after nature and nourishment, it's now for us all to develop those aspects of ourselves, whether we're men or women. And for women to take a much larger voice, a louder voice, in articulating the deep feminine, which is absolutely not and superficial, and it, it's nothing to do with how one looks or celebrity. It's about deeply rooted strength to defend our natural world and to bring us back into a wise way of uh, dealing with each other and dealing with resources shortage of resources, and guaranteeing a future for us. Because if we don't do this, there is no future.
1: Dr. Silla Elworthy, that brings us, sadly, to the end of this first program. And I'm sure that we will continue this very point as we move into our second program. I do thank you so much today. It has been a wonderful beginning to our series together.
2: Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it.
1: And to our listeners today, I do hope that you have enjoyed this program as much as I. You can gain information on this and any other program in the series at davidgibbons.org. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in Discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org.
0: in discussion with david gibbons is sponsored in part by bowman global change Specializing in helping companies reduce their carbon emissions, Bowman Global Change applies real science to real business practices to produce results. From designing green programs to one-on-one training to helping set up green action teams in your business, Bowman Global Change translates complex science in practical ways that everyone can understand and use. For more information or to discover how Bowman Global Change can help your organization, visit BowmanGlobalChange.com.